Bud Palatial, UltimateSportsTalk.com radio studios. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Ultimate Sports Talk show, our weekly get-together to sit around around the campfire and talk about the world of sports. And believe me, as the weather is turning colder, it is time to sit around a campfire because it is getting flipping freezing out there. We've got our final high school football game of the regular season tomorrow night, and if the Waynedale Golden Bears end up making the playoffs, it'll be just our last regular season game, and we'll be bringing you all of their postseason games coming up next week. But there's a lot happening around the world of sports this week. It's World Series time, and the Royals lead it 2 to nothing. The NBA season has begun. The NFL continues to look into Johnny Manziel and will this guy ever quit being a problem child? And the Big Ten is losing a coach. But first, we're going to jump right into college football here this evening because this is a very important story, one that ESPN is probably going to make a mountain out of a molehill about. So we might as well get this out of the way right off the bat for this Thursday night. The Ohio State Athletic Department reportedly self-reported 29 violations to the NCAA from the period of February 1st to September 10th, and six of the violations involved the football program. According to the college newspaper, The Lantern, which obtained the list of violations via a public records request, one of the reported violations was Braxton Miller's Instagram post from March that promoted AdvoCare, a nutritional supplement. Once it became aware of the post, OSU's compliance department asked Miller, who was not named in the list of violations, to remove the post, which he did a few hours later. Miller was initially declared ineligible, but was reinstated without any conditions by the NCAA just a few weeks later. Another noteworthy self-reported violation appears to involve cornerback Cardell Jones, the violation details a football player's attendance of Cleveland Browns cornerback Joe Hayden's celebrity softball game, which everyone knew at the time Jones attended. That because Jones made no bones about it, and that was when he made a big deal about trying to date Ronda Rousey on Twitter. So the Buckeyes sent a letter of education to Jones to be placed in his file to emphasize rules regarding promotional activities after this violation occurred. It had no bearing on Jones's eligibility and he was not suspended. The other four football violations included a walk-on who was ineligible to travel with the team to the Sugar Bowl, an impermissible phone call from head coach Urban Meyer to a recruit, special teams coach Kerry Coombs posting a photo of high school coaches in front of the national championship trophy on his Twitter account, and a current football player tweeting about a class of 2016 recruit. Now, as menial as these sound, as trivial as these violations sound, probably the one that would have the most teeth is the phone call from head coach Urban Meyer to a recruit that was during one of the impermissible times. But as far as a walk-off who was ineligible to travel with the team to the Sugar Bowl, okay, he, he's a walk-on, he's traveled all year. Why should the NCAA care about that? He is not a scholarship football player. The second thing is special teams coach Kerry Coombs posting a photo of high school coaches in front of the national championship trophy on his Twitter account. Who cares? What recruiting advantage do the Buckeyes have by Coombs posting a photo of two high school coaches standing in front of the National Championship Trophy. Do they think that those two high school coaches are the only coaches or only people standing in front of the National Championship Trophy and getting their pictures taken? And why do they care also if a current football player tweeting about a class of 2016 recruit, what difference does all this make in the scheme of things as far as whether or not the Buckeyes are going to get a recruiting advantage over somebody. None of these mean a hill of beans as far as that is concerned, but of course, as I said earlier, a mountain could be made out of a molehill on these things, so 
we might as well start reporting on them right now. Well, it is World Series time, and the New York Mets and Kansas City Royals played the first two games of the World Series this week in Kansas City, in which the Royals won both of the games. And the first one, boy, was it a nail-biter. Fourteen innings it took the Royals to finally defeat the Mets in that one, 5-4. to four. It was quite an outing. And, of course, the big story of the night had to do with Edison Volquez, and we'll get into that here in just a moment. But Dane Perry talks about the Royals' wins over the Mets, not only in Game 1, but in Game 2 last night in the World Series and Johnny Cueto's complete game last night. On Wednesday night, the Royals bested the Mets at Kauffman Stadium by a score of 7-1. to one. Uh, Most notably, Johnny Cueto, who has been so inconsistent uh, since being acquired by the Royals uh, earlier this season, pitched a complete game, looked dominant at times, gave the Royals exactly what they need, particularly since they burned through so much of their bullpen in that 14-inning game one. Uh, Cueto, again, probably his best start as a Royal Looked like his vintage self, and that's precisely what they needed. On the other side, Jacob deGrom had some rare struggles. Uh, ran into trouble in the fifth inning uh, for the first time since May of 2014, and for just the second time in his career, he logged more walks than strikeouts in a start. The Royals just continue to thrive when it comes to putting the bat on the ball, even against high strikeout guys like deGrom. You know, they made contact again tonight, limiting deGrom to just two strikeouts. They also, you know, as noted, uh, throughout this series and coming into this series, they handle high velocity very well. DeGrom was sitting in the mid-90s with this fastball. That did not prove to be a problem for the Royals uh, as they hung a number of runs on the board on DeGrom. So, just an authoritative performance by the Royals. They now go up 2-0 as these series shift to New York. You know, Throughout history, teams down 0-2 tend to go on to lose the series more than 80% of the time. So those are the odds facing the Mets as they go back to uh, to Queens for games three, four, and if necessary, five. So long odds for the National League champions, uh, whereas the Royals are now two games from taking the next step that they almost took in 2014. Well, do I think that the Mets are out of this series? Absolutely not. The Mets have got a good young baseball team. Are they the caliber of the Royals? Probably not. But the Royals just seem to have a knack of getting the big hit at the right time time and that was no more evidenced than on Tuesday night in game one when Alex Gordon with one out in the bottom of the ninth inning hit the smash to center field down four to three and that tied the game up at four four and the Royals ended up winning that game in the 15th inning so the Mets now they go home to City Field to that raucous New York bunch that they will be playing in front of the Royals Well, they've got their own kind of fans, but I don't think they've seen anything as far as postseason play is concerned that these Mets fans are going to be having there at Citi Field. That Game 3 will be tomorrow night, and then Game 4 will be Saturday. Game 5 will be Sunday if necessary, and I think it's going to be necessary. But the big story, really, after Alex Gordon hitting the game-tying home run in the bottom of the ninth and that contest going 14 innings, was the outing that Edison Volquez put forth for the Royals. Not so much because he was just dominant and pitched the Royals into the seventh inning, but the fact that his father had died that day and his wife had requested that nobody tell Volquez prior to his start in Game 1 of the World Series. Fox even kept their mouth shut about it. The only organization that mentioned something about it was ESPN. And Fox then in the 8th inning, after Volquez had been taken out of the game, they showed Ned Yost and Volquez in the dugout, and Yost telling him he needed to go into the locker room. Volquez asked him why, and he said, just go. Go into the locker room. And when Volquez went into the locker room, His wife and his family were in the locker room, and they were there to tell him the tragic story that his father had died during the day. Of course, everything always comes down to ESPN trying to trump everyone. Of course, during the offseason, 
it was Chris Broussard trying to trump everyone with stories about the Cavaliers and what was happening with Tristan Thompson. You know all the stories that ESPN puts out. Well, Jamel Hill, who's one of the reporters on his and hers, said that she was not very happy with Fox and that the fact is is that they should have reported the fact that Edison Volquez's father had died during the day. Now, if Fox did not know, if they were unsure whether he knew, whether he knew in any way, mm -hmm. then that is different. Yes. Okay. Yep. But if they were able to verify and source the information in a way that they felt comfortable, much like we clearly took that approach, that we felt comfortable that he knew, then you report the information. That's what you do. I don't want to sound heartless about this because. I understand like you did, like you do, that, that this man lost his father. I, I haven't had to bury my parents either, okay? But the, the reality is that he is a pitcher in game one of the World Series. There's a certain kind of notoriety and fame that come with that. Most celebrities and people in the spotlight know you cannot control the information. You just can't. You ha that's part of what you give up. That doesn't make it right. That doesn't make it wrong. It just makes it what it is. I don't want to sound classless or or coarse about this but there's a very distinct line you have to draw between the royals doing what they have to do and you have to you having to do what you have to do as a news organization i've got news for you jamel hill you do sound classless you do sound coarse just because you've got the information does not mean you have to report it especially when the family has asked you not to to just leave it alone yeah there were some little quips on twitter during the day that it had happened but volquez was in his own little world he was ready to start game one and just because he's the game one starter does not mean he's the president of the united states just because he's the game one starter does not mean he's the premier of russia just because he's the game one starter does not mean that you can go out and tell everyone about every activity that Edison Volquez has ever been involved in. There is some couth in reporting today. And Jamel Hill and the rest of the ESPN reporters that, that made this a story before it was supposed to be a story have proven that they don't have that couth. That they don't have the proper scruples to be a media reporter. I, for one, am embarrassed that Jamel Hill would take this kind of an attitude as far as reporting this story. It's nobody's business. It's Edison Volquez's business and his family. It's his business. It's nobody else's business. I don't care if his father had died or was home watching the game on his sofa, watching it on TV. That means nothing to me as far as how game one was concerned. But it meant everything to Edison Volquez, to the Royals, and to Volquez's family. And for Jamel Hill to stand up and say that that should have been reported, she's wrong. And she should stand up and say that she is wrong for siding with that opinion. Now, another thing that happened in Game 1 was, of course, Fox losing power. And that ended up interrupting Game 1. And several people couldn't understand why Fox losing power caused Game 1 to be in a delay. People were saying, well, why? Is television infusing themselves into the game of baseball? And the actual answer to that is, yes, they are. And how is that happening? Because of instant replay. Instant replay uses the cameras that the networks put in place around the stadium to get the views that they are going to have to make the decisive call. And because Fox, a truck outside, had lost power and they were knocked off TV and suddenly you had to go with the international version of the announcers with Matt Vazgersian and John Smoltz, suddenly you didn't have the instant replay power. So the game was delayed for almost 10 minutes. Matt Harvey stood out on the mound wondering what was going on. Joe Torrey and Jim Leland were there near the first base dugout, and they were trying to decide what to do along with the umpires. But now, I guess it's easy to say, TV is part of the game. 
And you can thank Instant Replay for that. Another thing that's been going on, you know, the NFL will not allow coaches to be hired or interviewed during the week of the Super Bowl. But Major League Baseball, there's always been an unwritten rule that managers would not be hired or fired during the World Series. Well, that rule was thrown right out the window this afternoon by three teams, and another team got rid of their general manager. John Heyman of CBS Sports tells us more about the story he broke about former Dodgers manager Don Mattingly being hired today as the Miami Marlins manager, plus news on the Blue Jays' general manager situation and the new Nationals manager in Bud Black. Yeah, you know, Jeffrey Loria, the owner of the Marlins, has been targeting Mattingly since the summer. He's been keeping an eye on the Dodgers' situation. Obviously, Mattingly and the Dodgers parted ways late last week, and uh, ever since then, uh, Mar- uh, Marlins owner Loria has been courting Mattingly. Uh, they had a meeting Monday. Things went very well, from what I understand, and now uh, they have come to an agreement, and uh, he will be the Marlins manager. Uh, obviously, this is a team that... Uh, underperformed this year, very disappointing uh, finish, uh, beset by injuries, um, underperformance from individual players, uh, a lot went wrong, and uh, they're hoping that Manley cleans it up. Cleans it up. He's a calm influence, he's got five years experience, which is what uh, Laurie was looking for, and he had a long-standing relationship with Manley from the uh, New York days, Manley obviously the star player for the Yankees in the, uh, in the 80s and uh, early 90s, and Loria, a New York resident. So uh, this is the guy that Loria wanted, and now he has him. Yeah, and I'm sure the fans down in Miami are excited about this one. But let's turn to the Blue Jays. You were all over this news about general manager Alex Anthopoulos. He has declined his option, which is kind of surprising considering the year that they had and the run they've just had in the postseason. Yeah, this is a shocker to uh, to all of baseball. He's the possible AL Executive of the Year after acquiring Troy Tulowitzki and David Price and several others and uh, really reinforcing, bolstering that team and helping that team uh, get all the way to the ALCS where they lost to the Royals, and we see how good the Royals are. So really a terrific job by him this year. Um, the issue was they had a new pres- team president come in. He was very loyal uh, was Alex to Paul Beeston, uh, the team president for more than two decades, and a very, very close relationship. But still, uh, nobody expected that uh, Anthopoulos would resign. He had a couple months with uh, Mark Shapiro, who came in from Cleveland, was the president there. And uh, we're going to have to figure out what exactly went on behind the scenes, but uh, this is quite a shocker that he has decided to resign now. Uh, there are no openings at the moment. Uh, he will be a general manager candidate when openings do occur, but uh, for now he is just out of a job. Uh, really, really stunning development. Yes, it is. Very stunning news. But more news coming on the manager front today. Bud Black, he is now the new manager in the, in Washington. So what can you say about this? I know you've been following this story all the way through, and he was one of the candidates that you named for the Nationals right from the get-go. Yeah, right from the start, I thought Bud Black and Dusty Baker would be the two best candidates, both very experienced, very successful uh, managers. Uh, Baker, probably the more successful of the two, had really had uh, very strong seasons in Chicago and Cincinnati and in San Francisco, made the playoffs in all uh, three venues. Uh, Bud Black, a very low-key, uh, personable fellow, uh, was the manager of the year in 2010 with the Padres. I, I think these were the two key guys from the beginning, and uh, they basically came down to those two at the end, and uh, they interviewed uh, the same day, Monday, and um, they worked it out with Bud Black to be the manager. Uh, uh, I think this is a very good move by the team. Um, He really does fit this team that's ready to win. Obviously, they had a very, very disappointing season, winning 83 games. I think everybody expected them to win 95-plus. So it was basically a disaster this year uh, for the Nationals, and they needed a veteran, steady hand uh, with with experience, and they got one here in uh, Bud Black, who had about nine years in San Diego as the manager. Well, first of all, Alex Anthopoulos, he just learned that he could not work with Mark Shapiro. You know, I talked about this on Ohio Baseball Weekly during the season when we learned that Mark Shapiro, in the middle of September, had taken the Toronto Blue Jays presidency job, leaving the Cleveland Indians. And I told Mark Donahue that night that Mark Shapiro going to the Blue Jays was going to be a mistake by the Blue Jays 
because he was going to trim the payroll and he'd trim the front office and he would have a handle on everything. And Alex Anthopoulos, who had power under Paul Beeston, the previous president who's retiring after 20-some-odd years of the Blue Jays, Anthopoulos saw this. He saw that Shapiro was going to be meddling in the baseball affairs. He wasn't hired to do that. He was hired to take care of the overall ball club the way he did in Cleveland. But in Cleveland, the only thing they ever did to improve the ball club under Mark Shapiro was A, trade two Cy Young Award winners back-to-back, B, build a bar in the right field concourse with a playpen right beside it so you could drop your kids off at the babysitting area and then go have some drinks right next door, and C, bring in Dollar Dog Night with Sugardale Hot Dogs and Fireworks Night. That's the only things that he did for the city of Cleveland. In his 20-some years in Cleveland, they won one division, one. And that was in 2007. That's it. Now he's going to Toronto, where they've got a major free agent signee to take care of in David Price. And I said that night on Ohio Baseball Weekly, that what he does with David Price would earmark his presidency of the Blue Jays forever. It would make no difference. Anything else that he did whether or not they signed David Price, that would earmark his general managers. And right now, Alex Anthopoulos is seeing, and he's been a great general manager. Don't forget, he went out and he got Price. Don't forget, he went out and got Troy Tulowitzki. He went out and made the trade for Josh Donaldson. He made three fantastic trades that put the Blue Jays into the American League Championship Series against Kansas City. But Anthopolis is seeing the handwriting on the wall, that Mark Shapiro is the boss, and everything is going to be put through him. And Mark Shapiro is laying down the law in Toronto, and that is not going to work. And the Blue Jays already have found that out. They have lost a great general manager in Alex Anthopoulos. Bud Black, I think it's a great hire by the Washington Nationals. It makes a lot of sense. Bud Black has had several good years as manager of the San Diego Padres. He always had nothing to work with as manager of the Padres. Then when he got something, he couldn't get the team to gel because there just was no chemistry with that team last year. But now he's going to a team that he's going to understand how to use the bullpen. He's going to understand how to use the outstanding pitching staff that they've got. And he's got experience as a manager with the Padres. And now he's going to a team that needs to be brought together. And I think Bud Black is the man. Now, John Feinstein, the outstanding writer who normally writes about Duke basketball and college basketball, he got on the radio today and just caused an uproar saying that Cal Ripken Jr. wasn't even granted an interview with the Washington Nationals. Well, the fact is, why should he have been? There should have been no reason why Cal Ripken Jr. would get an interview with the Washington Nationals. A, Cal Ripken Jr. is an announcer on TNT and TBS. What has he done that warrants him having an interview with the Washington Nationals? Nothing. He hasn't managed at the major league level or the minor league level. And just because Cal Ripken Jr. is a Hall of Famer doesn't make him the type of manager that the Washington Nationals need. And another managerial hiring that was made today, other than Mattingly with the Marlins and Black with the Nationals, Adam Green is now the new manager of the San Diego Padres. He was the Arizona Diamondbacks' third base coach. Well, he has now become the new manager of the San Diego Padres. So three managerial hirings during the World Series today and one general manager leaving in the Toronto Blue Jays, Alex Anthopoulos. I'll tell you, Rob Manfred has got to be wondering, what do I got to do to keep the World Series in the forefront when I'm battling with the NFL, I'm battling with the NBA season starting, and now I've got to battle with my own teams to keep the World Series in the forefront. Who knows, but it didn't happen today. Back to college football and the Ohio State Buckeyes who have a bye this week. They're still the number one team in 
the college football rankings. And, of course, the other rankings, the playoff rankings, are going to be coming out in a week. And there's a lot of people that think maybe LSU should be on top of it, maybe Baylor also. Quite honestly, until the Ohio State Buckeyes lose the game, they really should be at the top because they are the defending national champions. And now they've got a new quarterback, and that quarterback is J.T. Barrett, and he may not have the strongest arm on Ohio State's roster, but he wants to make it clear that he doesn't think that his arm is weak. In a passionate post-practice media session, Barrett spent nearly two minutes defending his ability to throw the ball deep down the field to the media, particularly as it related to its head-to-head comparisons with teammate Cardell Jones. ESPN's Austin Ward reports on what Barrett said. Well, basically, he he seemed to have something on his mind he wanted to get out there, and that was that all this talk in the offseason that Cardell Jones had the strong arm and he was just a runner and a multi-purpose threat, that that wasn't really accurate. You know, he he did say that Cardell Jones had a stronger arm than him, but by no means does that mean that J.T. Barrett has a weak one. He uh, seemed to bristle at that notion quite a bit, that he couldn't throw down the field the same way Cardell Jones did during that three-game run at the end of last year and while he was the starter this year. So he, he just pointed out that the, the offense didn't change dramatically, uh, that he could make some of the downfield throws, even if he couldn't just stand in one place and maybe throw 80 yards the way Cardell Jones could. Um, that he he seemed to want a little more credit for his ability as a passer than maybe he's been getting. What does he have to do to change the perception of being just a runner to now kind of an all-around good quarterback as far as throwing deep, running, and being uh, effective in, in, in those terms? Well, you know, I think Ohio State just needs to take more shots down the field with him. I think there have been times, not just with Barrett uh, when he's been in the game the last three weeks, but also with Cardale Jones where Ohio State has been a little bit hesitant to dial up that deep passing attack. Um, and that took away when Cardell Jones was in his biggest strength as we're talking about it. But, you know, Ohio State has been without, you know, Devin Smith is not there anymore, that deep threat that both guys threw to last year, Jeff Hireman, Evan Spencer, those targets aren't there. Ohio State is now working in some newer guys, um, Braxton Miller being one of them, Jalen Marshall, Curtis Samuel, that are running those deep routes down the field. And I think it's just taken some time for them all to get comfortable in that position. Uh, the play callers to have more trust in it. And then there's also been the uncertainty when the Buckeyes were going back and forth between the two guys. I think that's probably limited some of their opportunities to stretch the field. You know, now they have a bye week. Uh, they're going to go into that stretch run in November. Uh, they've had some chance, a chance to regroup and work with Barrett. Just give them a chance to, to show off that arm a little bit, and that'll, that'll help erase some of these doubts so he won't have to defend himself anymore. Barrett threw for over 2,800 yards before breaking his ankle in the regular season finale against Michigan last year, and he's often been labeled as a dual-threat option with much of the focus on his rushing ability. Previously, Barrett just let his numbers do the talking to answer the doubts, but he apparently was ready to cut loose with more than just his arm to shoot down the skeptics. And quite honestly, he's got arm enough to be an NFL quarterback. Does he have the arm of Cardell Jones? No, but... There's nobody else in college football that has the arm of Cardell Jones. That's just a proven fact. That kid can throw the ball a country mile. But is he as good a quarterback as J.T. Barrett is? No, he is not. Well, an emotional Jerry Kill announced yesterday that he has to retire as football coach of the Minnesota Golden Gophers, and this is really a sad story. If you saw the press conference, and I'm going to play it here for you in just a moment, It was just a sad situation because Jerry Kill did not want to step down as football coach of Minnesota. But the medical concerns that he has just left him no alternative. The 54-year-old Kill, who has dealt with the effects of epilepsy since 2005, said he attended practice on Tuesday after suffering two seizures and has had additional seizures in the past year. This is not the way that... I wanted to go out, but you all know about the struggles, and I did my best to change, but some of those struggles have returned, and I don't want to cheat the game. I 
Welcome to StartToBean.com. I'm Michael Rand, joined here by Joe Christensen, Gophers football beat writer. A uh, somber day here at uh, TCF Bank Stadium. We've just heard from Jerry Kill resigning as a head football coach with the Gophers, citing health concerns. Um, Joe, tell, tell me, what you, the emotion of the day was, was overwhelming in, in there. He was very... I mean, he broke down in tears a few different times. He was, you know, talking about, you know, never he's never done anything else in his life. He doesn't know exactly what to do with himself. But the health concerns became such a an issue here. I know somebody will ask, Coach, what are you going to do? I don't know. I ain't done anything else. That's the scary part. What was your impression? What was your takeaway from everything you saw there? It was gut-wrenching as somebody who followed him through the seizure situation he had uh, two years ago um, when he you know, missed the Michigan game. And coincidentally, this is Michigan week, and you, you saw how painful this decision has been for him and Rebecca. And he you know, talked about how he never wanted to feel like he was stealing from the U of M and... Uh, that must have been a thought that went through his head, you know, like to have more episodes. And um, even though I don't think people around him felt that way, uh, right. I just think uh, he he just wanted what was best for the football program. I've given every single ounce to the game and the state of Minnesota that I could. And I've never cheated President Kaler. Ever cheated the university one time? I didn't steal. Going forward here, it's interesting. Uh, they have an interim football coach, Tracy Clay, is taking over as, as the head football coach now for him, uh, which he did quite capably in 2013. You also have an interim athletic director, Beth Getz. Um, this program doesn't, I mean, the, the whole department has is, is got a little bit of uh, a lot of turmoil right now. It kind of feels like you can't move forward on one until you move forward on the other. And with the, uh, with the athletic director position, they're waiting for the results of this external review. How, how do you see that sorting itself out? And does that, you know, halt a little bit of this momentum that they have going? Well, yeah, big day on Friday when they're going to break ground on this new Athletes Village $166 million project that really is the future here. Right. They have good people in place. You know, yeah. Beth Getz is really proving herself to be extremely solid in that position right now. In 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 an increasingly tough role. There's been a lot. And, you know, and Tracy Clays, uh, there's a ton of faith in him within the department, I think, with fans. Uh, He did a tremendous job two years ago and, uh, you know, continues to run one of the better defenses they've had over time. And and, uh, so... In that sense, yeah, you're right. It's it's a tumultuous time of, you know, who are going to be in these roles long term. But they, in the meantime, they got pretty good people. And we'll see exactly that uh, long term. What happens short term? The news here, obviously, Jerry Kill resigning as head football coach. Shock to a lot of us. Uh, even even with you know the history just kind of coming out of the blue, but. That's that's the news of the day, and that's uh, you know it's quite a morning. And they have Michigan coming on Saturday. It's just uh, no, and, a, and a gamut of really tough games after that. Ab- absolutely. This will be an interesting time. Kill had not missed time on the sideline since his leave of absence in 2013. He was 29 and 29 in five seasons at Minnesota, and directed the Gophers to eight wins in 2013 and 14. And to cap the 2014 season, Minnesota played in its first New Year's Day bowl game since 1962. Kill engineered a turnaround in the Twin Cities, guiding Minnesota from a 3-9 and mark in his first season to six wins and a bowl berth in 2012. In the first back-to-back eight-win season since 2002 and 2003. Minnesota's going to be in action this week after a bye week. They are going to host Michigan on Saturday night on ESPN, and that game will be at 7 o'clock. And as I said, it will be on ESPN. Now let's take a look at the rest of the college football schedule from around the top 25 this week. There are two games going on tonight. First of all, at 7 o'clock, started about a half an hour ago on ESPN, North Carolina is playing at number 23, Pittsburgh. And both of these ACC schools are 6-1 and one on the season. And Pittsburgh is a slight 
favorite. Also, at 7.30, should be kicking off just about now, it will be West Virginia 3-3 three and three on the year at number 5 TCU. TCU, the Horned Frogs, they're at 7-0 on the season. At noon on ABC on Saturday, let's get into the Saturday afternoon games. Number 17, Florida State 6-1 will be hosting the 3-4 and four Syracuse squad. Also at noon on ESPN, Ole Miss, number 19 in the country, will entertain Auburn. Also at 3 o'clock in the Pac-10 network, it will be Colorado, 4-4, four and four, going to number 24, UCLA. On Saturday afternoon at 3.30 on CBS Sports, it is Georgia, 5-2, and two, taking on number 11, Florida, at 6-1 and one on the year. At 3.30 on ABC, number 3, Clemson, at 7-0, and oh, they're unbeaten, goes to North Carolina State. And the Wolfpack is 5-2 and two on the year. Also at 3.30 on ABC, a Big Ten matchup between the 2-5 and five Maryland Terrapins and the number 10 Iowa Hawkeyes. They are unbeaten also at 7-0. and oh. At 3.30 on Fox Sports 1, number 14 Oklahoma at 6-1 and one will go to the winless Kansas Jayhawks. And the Jayhawks are a 40-point underdog in that one. At 3.30 on ESPN on Saturday afternoon, number 12 Oklahoma State at 7-0 and goes to the 5-3 and Texas Tech Red Riders. At 7 o'clock on the CBS network on Saturday night, it's Tulane going to number 16 Memphis. They're 7-0 and and they are coming off a 68-point effort last Thursday night. At 7 o'clock on ESPN with a new football coach, Miami of Florida, whom they dumped Al Golden last week after losing 58 to nothing. They're 4-3 and three on the year. They go to number 22, Duke, to take on the Blue Devils at 6-1. and one. And at 7 o'clock on ESPN2, it will be Vanderbilt taking on number 16, Houston. Houston is at 7-0. and oh. At 7 o'clock on the Pac-10 network, it is Oregon State taking on number 13, Utah. The Utes dropped from number 4 last week to number 13 this week after losing their first game of the year. They're 6-1. and one. They fell last week to USC. At 8 o'clock on ABC, the number 9, Notre Dame Fighting Irish at 6-1 and one goes to unbeaten and number 21, Temple. That should be a good one on ABC. And the final top 25 game on Saturday night, it is at 10.30 on ESPN. Number 8, Stanford, 6-1 and one on the year, goes to Mike Leach and the Washington State Cougars. They are 5-2 and two on the season. You're listening to the Ultimate Sports Talk Show on UltimateSportsTalk.com. I'm Dave Mitchell. Nice to have you along here this evening as we are in the middle of our weekly get-together talking about the world of sports. You ever had a little dog that was just a problem child? You know, you get a litter of puppies, and most of them are cute. And then there's one or two that just seem to just always get into trouble. Just can never stay out of trouble. Well... That's the case right now with Johnny Manziel of the Cleveland Browns. A guy I never wanted the Browns to draft. Didn't want to have to deal with all of the crap that has gone on with Manziel since he became a Cleveland Brown. But then again, I'm not in the Browns' front office. I wish I was. The Browns probably would be a winner by now if I was in the front office. But no, I'm not. It's Ray Farmer. Who's a joke? It's Jimmy Haslam who's being investigated by the FBI. And there's Mike Pettin, who may be the most overrated coach in the NFL. I've come to that conclusion. And no decision has been reached in the ongoing NFL investigation now into Johnny Manziel's driving incident on October 12th, a league spokesman said today. See, Manziel was interviewed by league investigators last night. Cleveland Browns coach Mike Pettin said the team had not heard from the league since the interview, but he does expect a decision on Manziel's availability very soon. Well, it would be nice if the league would come out and tell us if he's going to be allowed to play on Sunday or not, because he may be the Browns' starting quarterback on Sunday if Josh McCown cannot throw the ball. Remember, McCown is suffering from a sore right shoulder, which just so happens to be his throwing arm. Or Austin Davis will be the starting quarterback. Well, Manziel, 
is being investigated after he had an argument with his girlfriend in his car that night. Witnesses said Manzel was driving at a high rate of speed on the shoulder, and Manzel's girlfriend initially said Manzel hit her. She later recanted that, and no charges were filed, and the pair were permitted to leave together that night from the Avon Lake Police Department. The NFL sent senior advisor Lisa Friel, former head of the Sex Crimes Prosecution Unit in New York County District Attorney's Office to interview Manziel. The Northeast Ohio Media Group first reported Friel and NFLPA attorney Heather McPhee were present. Sources say that Manziel is unlikely to face discipline for the incident, which has been the Browns' hope all along. League spokesman Brian McCarthy said no decision has been reached and the investigation is continuing. Now, Josh McCown has been taking part in practices on a limited basis this week. He's been resting that sore right shoulder, but the Browns seem confident that McCown will be able to start and play Sunday against the Cardinals. What I was totally amazed at last week was the fact that Manziel was actually on the active list. Ray Farmer came out earlier this week and said they could not suspend him for the actions according to the current collective bargaining agreement. That's fine, but they did absolutely nothing to punish this kid. Manziel has been getting away with this kind of stuff for years, throughout his high school years, his college years, and now his first two professional years. It's getting old. It's about time somebody stand up to this kid and tell him enough is enough. Remember when he got into trouble with Texas A&M during the offseason between his freshman and sophomore year, and he was suspended for a game, and that ended up just being a half game? And then when he was playing in that game, came in in the third quarter, he made some sort of a unsportsmanlike gesture to the players on the opposing team, and his coach finally took him out for one series. This kid has never had to be accountable for anything he has ever done. It's time somebody show him. I frankly agree with Bill Cower. You know, Cower, the old Cleveland Browns player and former Pittsburgh Steelers coach. I agree with Bill Cower. Cower said last week on the NFL Today, Johnny Manziel should be cut. He should be done. The Browns should just get rid of him. Let him go. Cut your losses. But Johnny Manziel is a favorite of Ray Farmer and Jimmy Haslam. And what you're seeing right now is a coaching staff led by Mike Pettin that does not like Johnny Manziel and a front office that loves him. And then when you go back to the coaches, you've got two quarterbacks, actually three if you want to count Austin Davis into this mix. You've got a game plan that surrounds a quarterback that stays in the pocket and plays pocket quarterback football. And then you've got Johnny Manziel. So realistically, what you've got is an offensive coordinator that has to put two game plans together. One game plan for Davis and McCown, and another game plan for Johnny Manziel. Because Manziel doesn't stick with the game plan, he runs all over the place. So you're either asking Manziel to play the way McCown does, which is the way Manziel cannot play, or you're asking your entire team to change the way that they've set up the game plan during the week to fit one man, and that one man is Johnny Manziel. So what do the Browns do? Do they turn around and do they cut Johnny Manziel? I wish they would. They could go out and sign a new quarterback, and that new quarterback could be Ryan Mallett. Do I think they should? No, I don't. But it's been a long week for Ryan Mallett, and why not throw another headache into his repertoire of teams that he has played for now? Why not send him to the Cleveland Browns? He was just released by the Texans, and he's presumably well-rested. He was traded from New England to Houston before the 2014 season, and he's been mostly underwhelming and unable to beat out Brian Hoyer, another former Browns quarterback too, by the way, keep that in mind, this August, only to get a second chance after Hoyer flopped in the season opener. But 
questionable decision-making by Mallett, both on and off the field, doomed Mallett. And the last straw came when he missed a team flight to Miami and had to hop a commercial flight. His excuse? He got caught up in traffic. Never mind that the 52 other players and countless Texan staff members made it on time. It was the second documented case of Mallet being late. He missed practice on August 27th because he overslept. But now Mallet is gone. A clearer picture is now coming into focus for the Texans, one that paints the quarterback as chronically tardy, which is one of the worst traits you can have when the guy's supposed to be your team leader. According to the Houston Chronicle's Aaron Wilson, the Texans put up with Mallet for months. They endured him being late for a team bus in Richmond, Virginia, when the team was there for joint practices with Washington, with a team official having to go to his hotel room to wake him up. Then, according to reports, Mallet overslept for a training camp practice days after Brian Hoyer was named the starter. Mallet has been fined several times. He doesn't have to worry about a hit to his pocketbook now because he's been cut by the Texans, something I wish the Cleveland Browns would do with Johnny Manziel. Well, there's a big Thursday night matchup tonight in the AFC going on. The Thursday night matchup, which is going to be on the NFL Network and CBS this evening. As a matter of fact, this is the last game on CBS. The rest of them will be on the NFL Network for the rest of the year. That's going to be the Dolphins and the Patriots. The New England Patriots are playing with a chip on their shoulder, and they are looking to go unbeaten this year. But the Miami Dolphins have been playing good football since they fired Joe Philbin. Well, the CBS crew of James Brown, Bill Cower, Bart Scott, and Boomer Esiason break down tonight's matchup between the Dolphins and the Patriots. Week 8 in the league starts with Thursday Night Football on CBS and NFL Network. It'll be featuring the Dolphins taking on the Patriots as we break down this AFC East Division rivalry. It's a new-look Dolphins. Boy, I'll tell you what, they've been impressive under Dan Campbell the last two weeks, guys. I don't necessarily know that we expected uh, them to be, look this good. I, right. I figured there would be some uptick, but it just goes to show you what was going on in that locker room with Joe Philbin as their coach. But now comes a completely different animal. Uh, now comes the New England Patriots. It's a short week. It's in New England. Uh, you know, Ryan Tannehill is 0-3 there as a quarterback, has not played great in that building. I've just got to believe, be, even though they're playing really well, they're playing fast, i got to think that New England is going to be really, really tough to beat on a short week in their building. I just want to see if they can play with that same momentum, that same passion. You know, that can overcome the lack of uh, you know, preparation that you get. I always, you know, give three or four, you know, three or seven points to the home team because you don't have to travel and all the things that you have to go recovery-wise and trying to rehydrate. You know, we don't know how how healthy that New England got out of the game. That was a very physical football game last week, you know, with the uh, with the New York Jets. We'll see how they – but I don't I don't put anything past the New England Patriots, you know, being able to prepare on the short week. New England started slow against the Jets. And when you're looking at the start that the Miami Dolphins have had the last two weeks, 41 nothing two weeks ago, 17-3. Um, so, I mean, when you look at this team, a fast start will give Miami – Can how far can you take this adrenaline? How far can you take this momentum that they're building right now? And, you know, and again, if they get behind, I think the thing that they've done right now with Ryan Tannehill, put him under center, running the football more. He's only throwing the ball 19 times one week, 23 times the next week. They've kind of taken them out of harm's way. They're playing good defense. They're playing sound football. But against the New England Patriots, when they start to run fast, they start to spread you out. If you get into that fast-break type of style, I think that's the thing you've got to be careful about if you're Miami. Keep it slow. Shorten the game. I think that's their best chance of going to uh, New England. And we'll see how strong that confidence is of Miami going against the New England Patriots. Well, with the Patriots playing at home on a short week, I'm going to take the Pats to win this football game and go 7-0 and on the year. Elsewhere on Sunday around the NFL, let's take a look. There's another game in London. This one's going to be on Fox. It's not going to be streamed on Yahoo this week, but it will be on Fox at 9.30 in the morning from Wembley Stadium, and the Detroit Lions will be playing the Kansas City Chiefs. I've got the Chiefs winning this football game, even though the Lions made news by firing their offensive line and offensive coordinator coaches this week. Elsewhere around the league, also on Fox at 1 o'clock, let's take a look at those 1 o'clock games. It will be the Cleveland Browns entertaining the Arizona Cardinals. Arizona coming in after their big victory over Baltimore on Monday night, while the Browns, well, they were hammered by the St. Louis Rams. Who's going to start at quarterback? Is it going to be Johnny Manziel? Josh McCown, well, 
NFL analysts Pete Prisco and Pat Kerwin break down the keys for the Cardinals and Browns. Pat, some quarterback uncertainty in Cleveland with the injury to Josh McCown. Yeah, I don't think they know yet what's going to happen. They're going to have to get all the way to the end of the week. I'm sure they don't want to start Manziel unless they have to. Uh, we know what Josh does. If Josh comes in the game, he's not going to keep tearing it up at 350. Not against this defense. Uh, but Josh will throw the ball 40 times in a game like this, and he's going to land up completing 250 yards worth and two touchdowns. Now, if they go to Manziel, which is, sounds to me more and more like they will, uh, don't expect Travis Benjamin and Barnage, the guys that are really hitting it, for McCown to have production. Those guys already have 108 targets and 68 catches, nine touchdowns. It'll fall right off. In the one start Manziel had, he only threw the ball 15 times. Uh, he will have a very hard time with this defense. Picture this, Pete. There's 12 interceptions from the Cardinals from seven different guys. Yeah, um, and... and it, it's, and and he's, he'll struggle immensely against a defense like this. And I'm glad you brought up the defense for the Cardinals because when I look at that defense, I point right to Honey Badger. Tyron Matthew might be one of the great stories in the National Football League. This guy had all kinds of problems coming out of LSU, and he's flipped his life around. He doesn't get into any trouble. He stays home. The Cardinals' teammates complain that he never gets out of the house. He's become a homebody dedicated to football. And you know what? He's become the next-generation player in this league, a guy who can play the slot, a guy who can blitz, a guy who can cover. This guy can do it all. He's having a fantastic year, Pat. And more and more teams are going to look for these kind of hybrid players going forward. I agree with you. I'm a big fan of his. I spent some time with him this summer. He is really dedicated. Patrick Peterson, he loves to give credit to Peterson for you know the influence on him. But I think Bruce Arians has given him a lot of wiggle room, and he's taken advantage of the freedom he's got there. Uh, I am a big fan. I'd love to see that guy make it to Honolulu. Do you watch him tackle? That guy tackles like he's 225 pounds. Yeah, he loves the game, too. And it's just an amazing story in the NFL and a big part of their defense. And they're, they're really good on defense. If Manziel starts in this game, they're going to come at him with everything imaginable. If McCown starts in this game, they're going to come at him with everything imaginable. <laughs> exactly. It's going to be tough to face him. That's why I like Arizona. I think you do, too. I like Arizona a lot in this game. And, uh, you know, there's enough injuries in the uh, secondary that I think Carson Paul Palmer and company will get after these guys. I'm going to take the Cardinals to win this football game. I don't think the Browns stand a chance to win this contest, even if it's in Cleveland. Elsewhere, the San Francisco 49ers are at St. Louis to take on the Rams. I take the Rams to win this football game. The New York Giants are going to New Orleans to take on the Saints. That one should be interesting because the Giants have added another player. Jason Pierre-Paul signed a one-year contract with the Giants this week after his fireworks accident on the 4th of July. Jason LaCanfora joins Adam Sheen to talk about just what the Giants had to see in order to sign Jason Pierre-Paul. Well, they needed to see that he looked like he would be able to protect himself, not leave himself vulnerable to an opponent. Uh, they needed to see that their doctors were comfortable with, with how his hand looked and, again, his ability to not only generate a pass rush and be able to use it uh, to balance himself to attack an opponent, but you know most importantly from their standpoint, not to be stuck one-handed, not to be stuck in a situation where opponents could you know maybe in inflict more injury upon him because of a lack of balance, leverage, etc. So they've got a two-week roster exemption. Everything I've heard points to the middle of November at some point. No firm time schedule yet as to exactly when he returns, but you'd think he'd need to practice for probably a couple of weeks. And then they'll see what they can get down the stretch on an incentive-laden one-year deal. Victor Cruz already ruled out for Sunday. When do you think we're going to see him on the field for the Giants, Jason? Boy, this is a tough one, Adam, because he's gotten close before and then had yeah. setbacks that have taken things completely in a different direction than anyone thought they would go. So I really wouldn't really hasten to give a guess at this point. I mean, he's going to have to have a situation where – he gets through five or six straight practices in, in more than a limited situation because he's been out a while now before I think they see him back there on the football field. And, and again, it's going to be a matter of, of building up stamina. It's going to be a matter of building up conditioning. It's going to be a matter of showing the team that he can get through a series of, of padded practices and not suffer a setback. So I would say this is something that's more, you know, every couple of weeks check back with me on it than it is day to day. So the Giants are at New Orleans with Jason Pierre-Paul this weekend. I'm going to take the Giants to win this football game. Elsewhere at 1 o'clock on Fox, it will be 
the Minnesota Vikings in Chicago to take on the Bears. I've got the Bears winning this contest. Also at 1 o'clock on CBS, the San Diego Chargers come east to take on the Baltimore Ravens. The Ravens have had the most atrocious start they have had since they moved from Cleveland to Baltimore just prior to the 1996 season. Who's going to win this one? Well, again, we go back to Pete Prisco and Pat Kerwin as they break down the keys for San Diego and Baltimore this Sunday afternoon. This once looked like it might be a pretty big game when the schedule came out. Uh, not so much now. No, it's been a devastating experience for Baltimore for sure. And uh, San Diego, not so good lately, and they were embarrassed by the Raiders. I'll focus on Joe Flacco. I actually feel sorry for Joe. Joe, between the protection issues and between his weapon issues uh, in the receiving end of it, uh, it's been a tough ride for him. They're not a bad football team. A couple of things come to mind. They got a thousand yard, a guy who's on pace for a thousand yards in the backfield. They have four guys catching the ball over 10 yards a catch. Um, but, and Joe's going to throw for four, over 4,000 yards, but they can't win games. And the road trips have been a devastation for those guys. They've been out on the West Coast too much. Uh, John Harbaugh has been complaining. But Joe Flacco, to me, can still beat a lot of teams. And I think he's going to have a little turnaround the second half of the season. The last time the Chargers went on the road, uh, Phillip Rivers lit up the Green Bay Packers for over 400 yards. I, when I watched the Baltimore Ravens play defense without Terrell Suggs, without the real pass rush threat, their secondary is vulnerable, particularly in the back end with the safeties. I think Phillip Rivers can go in here and just light up that secondary again. I'm not going to say he's going to put up 400 yards. Those don't happen. But this guy is nearly on pace for 6,000 yards, Pat. He's carrying that team, and he's not getting a lot of help. He's not getting a lot of help, Pete, and, and I love Rivers. I think he's a guy that's underrated in so many ways because of the other two quarterbacks. But the reality is, on the road, the Chargers score 17 points a game, and they're 0-3. And I don't like them coming across the country to Baltimore. I think it's a rebound game. I know it was a, a short week for Baltimore, but they're an angry group, and John Harbaugh, he is festering right now. I would think they have find a way to pull this one out. I don't think there's a doubt who wins this football game. I think the Baltimore Ravens win this game, and I think they win it handily in front of their home crowd. Now the big game on Saturday afternoon on CBS. The Cincinnati Bengals are going to attempt to become 7-0 and for the first time in the history of their franchise, and they are going to be in Pittsburgh taking on the Steelers. This one's going to be one of the most entertaining games on Sunday afternoon, and I'm going to take the Bengals to beat the Steelers, even though Ben Roethlisberger is expected to be back as quarterback of the Steelers this week. I go with the Bengals to go 7-0 and in this game. Also at 1 o'clock on CBS, the Tennessee Titans will be in Houston to take on the Texans. Bobby Hoyer's got the job. It's all his a quarterback of the Texans, and I'm going to pick Houston to win this football game. Now, let's move o'clock to the 4 o'clock games. The 4.05 game on CBS has the Jets in Oakland to take on the Raiders. I think the Raiders are going to knock the Jets down a few pegs. I'm going to take Derek Carr and the Oakland Raiders. At 425 on Fox, the Seattle Seahawks go to Dallas to take on the Cowboys. Well, the Cowboys, do they have Des Bryant back? Don't they have Des Bryant back? That's a good question. The Seahawks, they need a win. They are desperate for a win. They need a win. They get this win on the road in Dallas against the Cowboys. And an 830 on NBC on Sunday night, the Packers will be in Denver to face the Broncos. Aaron Rodgers of the Packers, Peyton Manning for the Broncos, two of the best quarterbacks in the NFL, two of the best offenses in the NFL, two of the best defenses this year in the NFL. Who wins this one? It's hard to win a football game at Mile High Stadium in Denver. Believe me, it is almost impossible to win a football game in Denver. But I'm going to take the Packers anyway. The Packers win this one in Denver. And finally, on Monday night on ESPN, Monday Night Football, the Indianapolis Colts will be in Carolina to take on the Panthers. And I think the Panthers will continue to stay unbeaten 7-0 after they defeat the Colts on Monday Night Football.
And that's going to do it on a football-laden Ultimate Sports Talk show for tonight. I'm Dave Mitchell. Don't forget to join us tomorrow night for Waynedale Golden Bears football, beginning at 6 o'clock with Golden Bear Rewind, 6.30 with the PNC Bank pregame show, and then 7 o'clock with the kickoff. Waynedale entertaining their arch rival, the Smithville Smithies. Thanks for joining me here this evening. Thanks to Greg Mitchell, our producer, but most of all, as I said, our thanks go out to you for listening. I'm Dave Mitchell. Until next Thursday night at 7 with another Ultimate Sports Talk show, have a good week, everybody.